Good morning, everyone. This morning we're going to be in Galatians chapter 2, verses 11 through 14. Galatians 2, 11 to 14. Does anyone know the page number for this in the Pew Bibles? A little bit louder. 973, okay, thank you. Please stand for the reading of God's word. Galatians chapter 2, verses 11 through 14. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? You can be seated as we pray. Lord, give us now ears to hear what your Spirit says to your church through your word. Amen. Sometimes it's desperately important to speak up against respected leaders. Between 1983 and 1999, 750 people had been killed in a string of Korean air crashes. So the airline was internationally disgraced and they were on the brink of extinction when David Greenberg was brought in to overhaul their operations. And he actually discovered the problem fairly quickly. You see, the pilots were overwhelmingly recruited from the Korean military, and they were used to a very rigid line of command, which was also then reinforced by Korean uh, cultural norms surrounding honor and shame. So as a result, co-pilots were rarely comfortable questioning their superiors, even when they should have been. In one notable incident, 228 people died in a crash near Guam when the co-pilot simply failed to warn the pilot that the plane was descending onto a ridge as it approached the airport. Sometimes respected leaders are wrong, and it can save lives to tell them so. And how much more is that true when we're not just talking about physical life, but we're talking about eternal spiritual lives at stake if we don't land safely on the one true gospel. That's what we're going to look at today, a time when a very respected leader was publicly shamed because he was making decisions that could have destroyed people spiritually. Since this is a story before us today, I don't really have an outline per se, but if it'll help you remember this section of scripture, you can think about it like this. A famous leader, a fearful hypocrisy, a fractured community, a false gospel. Now, there's no denying that Cephas, that's, that's his name in Aramaic, or Peter, if you want the Greek, 
there's no denying that he was a respected leader in the early church. I mean, this is the very Peter who had walked on water at Jesus' command. This was the Peter who made the great confession that Jesus was the Christ, in response to which, which Jesus then said, On this rock I will build my church. This is the Cephas who, on the day of Pentecost, his preaching brought 3,000 souls into allegiance to Christ. He healed the sick and disabled. He cast out demons. He stood up to tyrannical persecutors of the faith. He had miraculously escaped from prison. And his words even caused two evil schemers to literally drop dead. Peter was the first apostle to formally bring the gospel to non-Jewish peoples, and as we saw earlier in Galatians, he wholeheartedly supported Paul's commission to take the message of Christ to the whole Greco-Roman world. So is it really wise to disagree with this Peter? Is it wise to do so publicly? Well, it depends what's at stake. Prior to this passage, we wouldn't have even dreamed that, that any true Christian would have a reason to disagree with Peter and to stand against him. If you remember, in verses 1 through 10 of this chapter, we saw that Peter and the other apostles had agreed with Paul and his co-worker Barnabas that non-Jewish people did not have to follow the Jewish ceremonial law before they became Christians. They did not have to take on circumcision. All that was needed was faith in the substitutionary atonement of Jesus for their sins and, and faith that their lives were now forever joined to Jesus, their resurrected king. So the Old Testament laws that had served to establish these uh, ethnic boundaries between Israel and her idolatrous neighbors, those laws were now irrelevant. It was now time for God's kingdom to break open, reaching to all peoples of the world. Peter believed and celebrated these things. In fact, he was the leader in helping the early Jewish church understand that the Gentiles must be included and that in no way they should be hindered from membership in the people of God. If you remember, that was really made clear in Acts chapters 10 and 11. Uh, Peter was given a vision from God, and, and the vision assured him that the Jewish dietary laws had ended at the cross. Three times the voice told him, what God has made clean do not call common. Just after that, Peter was miraculously connected with a Roman centurion and his family, uh, a unique family. They desperately wanted to know God and his way of salvation. So Peter preached of Jesus to them, and the Holy Spirit fell on that place and dramatically filled everyone in the room. The response of the Jewish church was awe, silence, and then they glorified God, saying, to the Gentiles also, God has granted repentance that leads to life. They couldn't deny it. Now, most of us in this room, we probably take for granted that we, as non-Jews, have equal access to God and his community. Paul would later write in uh, the book of Ephesians, Remember that at one time you Gentiles, called the uncircumcision, were separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. You were strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility 
by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace and reconciling us, both Jews and non-Jews, in one body through the cross, killing the hostility. This was a joyful reality, and it was one that men like Peter, Paul, and Barnabas had all come to embrace. So in this passage, we see that Peter, this Peter, this famous Peter, has come to the mixed Jew-Gentile church of Antioch. It may have been a pastoral visit where he was wanting to encourage them. I mean, he was one of the 12 original witnesses to Jesus, and maybe he wanted to see the work of God that was happening here at this church that was far north of Jerusalem. Maybe he wanted to take a turn feeding these sheep with some teaching, some encouragement. He seems to be getting along just fine, mixing naturally with the the non-Jewish Christians there, just like he, he did with Cornelius and his family. And that's how things had stood. But then verse 11 starts with the word but. And Paul is going to expose Peter's changed behavior. He opposed him to his face because he stood condemned, meaning that the way that Peter was behaving was a path of which God disapproved. Though the main point of this passage is not about confronting leaders, I do want to pause briefly and just reiterate what a good model this is for us. We frequently repeat that no one but Christ is the head of this church, and he rules it by his spirit through his word. No one in this church stands above this book. And just as Paul confronted Peter, So James or or myself or Terry or Utah or any of the elders can be rebuked. But, as in this situation, confront us with the gospel. So this episode, it's not a precedent for making a stink about every disagreement, about ministry methods or stylistic preferences. Rather, it's about keeping the good news of salvation in Christ alone, by faith alone, central to everything we do. No leaders, even famous ones like the Apostle Peter or celebrity pastors of today, no one is immune from this kind of gospel critique. Now we go on to see that this famous leader, Peter, engaged in some fearful hypocrisy. He was being two-faced. He was play-acting. The hypocrisy is fearful in two ways. It's, it's fearful in its degree of devastation. But it's also literally fearful because it's motivated by fear. Verse 12 says that before certain men came from James, Cephas was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. This may take a a little bit of unpacking to understand exactly why Peter is afraid. Certain men came from James. Well, that doesn't seem to be anything to be afraid of. James here is the younger half-brother of Jesus, one of Mary's natural children with Joseph. He's the author of the book of the Bible named James. He was also, for a time, the foremost leader of the church at Jerusalem. So this James and Peter, they were teammates. They were brothers in Christ. They had many shared experiences. Nothing to be afraid of there. But we get the sense in the book of Galatians that this is a unique time 
in the history of the early church. Even though the Jewish Christians had embraced that non-Jewish peoples could come to Christ, could know God just as they did, it wasn't necessarily universally acknowledged that those Gentiles didn't need to keep the law of Moses. Rituals like circumcision, eating kosher foods, strictly observing certain holidays. And that would be settled once and for all at the uh, Jerusalem Council that's recorded for us in Acts chapter 15. But Galatians came earlier, and there was still some ambiguity regarding the ongoing role of the Jewish law for many Jewish Christians. And it's possible that these visitors from Jerusalem may have even put some pressure on Peter, taking advantage of that ambiguity. Maybe they said, hey, Peter, news is reaching us in Jerusalem about this, that you're habitually eating with Gentiles. I mean, this is causing serious scandal for our more conservative brothers. It's also being reported to non-Christians outside the church. So you can imagine what that's doing to our attempts to evangelize our Jewish brothers and sisters. Those attempts are being seriously hampered because of you, Peter. So show us that these reports are wrong. Give us a reason to go back to Jerusalem and put all the scandal to rest. Even if that sounds like a reasonable, best-case scenario, we should remember the contrast that was set forward by Paul in chapter 1, verse 10. He asked, Am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I was still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. So we've got this situation where Peter intellectually um, and, and convictionally, he understands that it doesn't matter before God whether or not a Christian follows the old dietary laws. In Christ, such ethnic distinctions do not matter. But it seems that these other Jewish men who'd been sent from James didn't have that knowledge. Perhaps Peter's afraid that if he keeps eating with the non-Jews, these people will think he's dishonoring God. Maybe he's afraid that they'll cause a quarrel. Maybe he's looking out for the young and vulnerable church at Antioch. He doesn't want them to be um, scandalized if these visitors make a fuss. Maybe Peter's afraid that these guys will go back to Jerusalem and start a smear campaign against him, undoing much progress in his ministry that he's worked at for years. Well, whatever the reasoning, Peter's not willing for these visitors to think poorly of him. And the big reason that Paul is telling us this story is that it ties in with what he's going to say later in the chapter about justification. Justification is a big word for the idea of how someone can come to be counted as righteous, good, okay, or acceptable. Peter knows in his head that it's only through faith in the finished work of Jesus that someone can be justified before God. But this story is showing that right now, Peter would rather just be justified before people. And that would then cause others to misunderstand justification before God. It wasn't the first time that Peter had acted hypocritically because he was afraid of people. If you remember, on the night of Jesus' crucifixion, Peter had three times denied even knowing Jesus because he was afraid of what people might do to him. And after the resurrection, Jesus had, had comforted Peter and restored him to ministry. But that fear of man apparently doesn't die easily. 
And here we see it popping up again. Similarly, Galatians chapter 6 seems to say that many of those who were pushing the Galatians to observe circumcision were doing so out of fear of man. 6.12 says, It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised, and only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. Well, I wanted to pause here and, and give just a word about hypocrisy in general among Christians. Does the fear of people or the desire to please people ever cause you to make decisions that are actually contrary to what you say you believe? Do you say that Christ alone is enough when you're in church circles, but then you seek the world's approval when you're away from church? Do you essentially live two lives and hope that your social media profile doesn't betray you, at least too badly. Sometimes you may think of ending the charade and living a consistent life, but then what would your girlfriend or your boyfriend think of you? Or would so-and-so supposed friend even give you the time of day if you didn't go along with whatever it is? Or would your colleagues laugh at you? Or maybe you'd even lose some career opportunities. Whenever we choose lifestyles that are different than what we believe, we distort the gospel for others too. However tactful you think you're being, others do see it. And if their faith is weak, they can be led astray. And if their faith is not weak, they are at the very least discouraged and hurt by your duplicity. So if I'm in any way describing an aspect of your life today, I want you to own it. Tell a brother or sister in Christ about your hypocrisy. Repent. Turn away from it. And believe the good news that Jesus alone is enough to make you whole, to make you acceptable, happy, and secure. Then you can go to sleep tonight with true peace that's available only to those who live a unified life before God. No hiding. Maybe it's a peace that you almost forgot could be yours. But in Christ, it really can. Now, there are many types of hypocrisy. And Peter's particular sin here in Galatians, it's not quite like his betrayal of Jesus on the night of the crucifixion. Instead, this hypocrisy that we see here is of a much more, shall we say, religious nature. He's actually acting differently so that people will think that he is holy and pure. Because according to their standards, it's not pure to eat all kinds of non-kosher foods in the company of Gentiles. So Peter's reverting back to living under the law, which then tempted others, like Barnabas, to do the same. He denied by his actions the truth of justification by faith alone. And the potential wreckage was even more severe than if an airplane were to smash into a mountainous ridge on descent. It would be the wreckage of a fractured community. A fractured community. Because by his hypocrisy, Peter was denying the truth that non-Jews had equal access to God through Jesus. Because of fear, he was essentially rebuilding the divisions that the gospel had already erased. Cephas was inadvertently elevating Jewish Christians above Gentile ones. And he didn't fully understand the implications of that. 
Well, Paul's accusation is that when Peter separated from eating with the Gentiles, he was forcing them to live like Jews in order to be included. They were hearing the message, unless you conform to our way of life, we can't have social interaction with you. But in the church, nothing stays at merely a social level. So if these Gentile Christians weren't acceptable company for the Jewish Christians, that necessarily means something about their spirituality. It it necessarily implies that their Christianity is somehow defective. It sends the message that, well, faith in Christ was apparently insufficient and it needed to be supplemented by something else. And that's why Paul rebukes Cephas to his face. Let me pause here and ask, what's the big deal? Would it always be wrong for Peter to eat kosher food with Jews? I mean, he, maybe he liked those foods, right? He grew up eating fish and olives. and um, So can't he eat those if he's in the company of Jews? Doesn't that seem unnecessarily restrictive that he then has to eat with the Gentiles? What if he doesn't want to give unnecessary offense to these Jewish persons? After all, doesn't Paul himself write in 1 Corinthians... Though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law to Christ. Well, it's worth noting that this here in Antioch is not an evangelism context. Everyone involved here in Antioch is supposedly a Christian, and so there should be unity It's the withdrawing that's the problem. The fact that the Gentiles are being purposely excluded here. Divisiveness is what's contrary to the gospel. The only exception to that is is when the gospel itself is the issue around which we must divide. So this withdrawing of Peter's, this gathering around the circumcision party, that was directly contrary to the principle Paul expressed in verse 6 when he said, Who they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. With this group, there is partiality. And there are really two guilty parties. There's Peter, who, you know, out of his fear of disapproval, he joined in with those who were making distinctions in the church. But then there's also the Judaizers who were visiting Antioch, the ones of whom Peter was afraid. They were intimidating others. They were pushing this agenda of adding purity regulations on top of the gospel. They were really good at keeping these Old Testament ethnic boundary laws. And in their minds, the ability to keep with these standards made them closer to God. These people believed that the Christian church could only be truly pure if their rules were maintained. Now, for us in this room, the Jewish dietary laws or circumcision probably aren't that big of a concern. And we may know better than to make ethnic distinctions in our midst. But of course, there are similar temptations toward division in our day and in our context as well. Do you make distinctions between the educated or the theologically savvy and those who are not so? Do the people you respect all eat or drink only certain things? Do you believe that anyone who's with it will, of course, control their health or their weight or their level of fitness just as you do? Do you treat people as somehow bearing less significance in the community if their attitude toward medicine or cleaning products doesn't line up with yours? Do you assume the worst about people with tattoos or piercings? 
do you believe that all godly people will maintain a certain standard of cleanliness or order in their home? Are you a passionate evangelist for your choice of schooling or your choice of parenting technique? Do you find yourself looking down on those who don't seem thrifty or aren't very skilled at financial decisions? Does your in-crowd seem to all have similar personalities, similar spiritual gifts, similar interests? Can you only learn from or share your life with people who are, in some way, doing the same things you do? Dietrich Bonhoeffer, in his short book, Life Together, warns against such a desire to conform others in the church to our own personal standards. This person, he writes, enters the community of Christians with his demands, sets up his own law, and judges the brethren and God himself accordingly. He stands adamant, a living reproach to all others in the circle of brethren. He acts as if he is the creator of Christian community, as if his dream binds men together. So he becomes first an accuser of his brethren, then an accuser of God, and finally the despairing accuser of himself. Have you been making distinctions? Take a look behind you. Do you you have a string of followers who want to do life exactly the way that you do? Or maybe your efforts blew up and instead you have a string of broken relationships behind you because people were hurt by the standards you imposed upon them. The community is fractured because a false gospel has been promoted within it. A false gospel. Throughout this series on Galatians, we've been saying that there are many types of gospel. Everyone has their own version of good news that they're trusting in to make them acceptable and secure. The question is, which gospel is reliable? Which one saves? Which one is God's gospel? If you, though you claim unity with all Christian brothers and sisters, actually show favoritism to people who are wealthy or orderly or dressed the right way or who eat right or who make the same schooling choices as you, I mean, there are infinite examples. These are just a few. But when you add these expectations for the lives of fellow Christians, you're not walking a straight line with respect to the truth of the gospel. You're adding to the gospel and you're wrongfully compromising the position of fellow Christians in the family of God. The reason why it's so much an issue is because the true gospel sets us free. Free to live lives that are pleasing to God not through the checking off of righteous works in order to measure our success, but rather by being remade into people who from the inside out have the right desires. And this happens because the Spirit of God is living within us. But if we reject that, if we turn again to trying to measure our righteousness by keeping external ordinances and traditions, we're essentially saying that the transformation that comes from faith alone in Christ alone is not good enough. You see, Christian freedom must be preserved for all through insisting that no behavior modification due to peer pressure can bring you closer to God. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. And slavery, it really is. 
Because with man-made rules, I mean, how good is good enough? Especially when the rules are maintained out of self-righteousness, I think you'll find that it's a moving target. It reminds me of a children's story by Dr. Seuss called The Sneetches. Stay with me here. There are these yellow, big bird-like creatures called Sneetches. And half of them stick their noses in the air because they are the special ones. You see, they have a star on their bellies. And so the other Sneetches without stars are talked down to and they feel unworthy and they wish they could measure up. One day, a man comes into town with a star machine. He invites all of these no-star Sneetches to pay to have stars stamped on their bellies. They all do this immediately, and, and so suddenly all of the Sneetches have stars. There's no in-crowd and out-crowd. Well, for those who are used to being set apart by their excellence, this simply won't do. So they immediately pay the man to hit reverse on his machine, and they go through to have their stars removed. Now no star sneeches are the acceptable ones. Well, the shrewd machine operator then convinces the remaining star sneeches to also go back through to have their stars removed. And round and round it goes, and the only winner is the man with the machine. Not unlike the role that Satan plays when man-made rules create divisions within our own church. Maybe you're good at keeping rules, whatever their origin. You're a star-bellied sneech, no doubt about it. Well, it's time to stop creating distinctions that hurt your brothers and sisters. Or maybe you're a no-star sneech. You look at people who seem to be at the top of the ladder. You revere them. You want to be like them. And so you take on the burden that they impose in order to be like them. But the latter is a mirage. Christianity is different. Jesus' first disciples were just ordinary people in all of their messy diversity. There's no inner circle. There's no ladder to climb. We are all happy beggars at the foot of the cross. Again, within Christ's church, there are no ranks. No special groups, no privileged races. There's no process to earning full status in this community. You don't have to join an insider's club in order to have access to Jesus. So you can see why this is a gospel worth fighting for. This is a gospel that exposes hypocrisy. Do you feel exposed at all by this passage? Can you reflect on actions or words of yours which, probably in a subtle manner, have been creating division? Or have you been creating an in-crowd and an out-crowd? Or have you been sending the message to your fellow Christians that they need something else in order to be whole and acceptable? Do you elevate Christians who are like you above others who aren't? Maybe you're like the men from Jerusalem and you need to take the step of breaking down the divisions you've built in the community. Maybe, like Peter, you, out of fear, have been trying to live up to someone else's standards, buying into their system because you want them to approve of you, or at least you're afraid of their disapproval. Fear God, not man. Stand up for the unadulterated truth of the gospel and the unity that it creates. Remember the message to Peter, which is true of your brothers and sisters in Christ. 
what God has made clean, do not call common. Or maybe, perhaps like Barnabas, you're just confused. I mean, you see people you respect drawing certain lines, and so you're inclined to do just what they do. I think we all need to grow in our understanding that we all have equal access before God through Christ. The righteousness of ourselves or the righteousness of others is not something to be measured, compared, analyzed, or critiqued. And when we attempt to do that, we're inevitably bringing our man-made standards into play. Now, maybe this all feels a bit nebulous because, after all, it's, it's not the law of Moses that you're holding on to and holding out to a brother and sister. You're not telling them to eat a certain way or get circumcised. So you might be asking, is it wrong of me to tell a person how to be wise? Is it wrong of me to convince them that they need to do such and such to, to guard their purity? There are a lot of things that, that could be wise. Well, if you hold out that rule as a universal standard for which they stand judged by you if they fail, yes, that's wrong. Because you're going beyond the word of God You're telling them not just the what of holiness, but you're imposing your own how. And this feels to them a world apart from actually helping them to do life according to the gospel. Okay, so then what's the better way? Put simply, life together in love. The title for our series is How Works-Based Religiosity Torpedoes Love. And so, as we set aside the demands that others justify themselves before us, we can create genuine love with them, and that love that builds up instead of tearing down. And I think you'll find that that results in a much more thankful and joyful and truly transformative church culture. To quote Bonhoeffer again, Even when sin and misunderstanding burden our church, is this not still a brother? with whom I too stand under the word of Christ. Thus the very hour of my disillusionment with my brother becomes a source of great health because it so thoroughly teaches me that neither of us can ever live by our own words and deeds, but only by that one word and deed which really binds us together, the forgiveness of sins in Jesus Christ. And this is where the book of Galatians is leading us to. In chapter 5, Paul writes, Do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. And if we live by the Spirit, let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. That's where our man-made standards lead, to biting and devouring one another, and ultimately, if unchecked, to receiving the grace of God in vain. What happened in Antioch was so important because the church at Antioch was sort of a laboratory for how Christianity was going to deal with various cultures. Would Christianity demand uniformity to a set of cultural norms, such as how Islam imposes certain Arabic traditions wherever it goes? Or had Jesus actually established a community that transcends man-made divisions and distinctions. Yes, he had, and we must never obscure that fact. From the harmony between Peter and Paul that we see in the later writings of the New Testament, we can see that Peter was repentant. 
And in fact, as Peter continued to travel away from Jerusalem, church history argues that he probably did more than anyone else to preserve the unity of the church, Jew and Gentile together. Of course, that's not so much to his credit. All he did was to ensure that Christ's finished work was unobscured because it was Jesus who brought down the dividing wall of hostility. And even if you've made similar mistakes to Peter, by God's grace, you, like Peter, can change. You can become one of the biggest advocates for unity in our church. And as you lead by example, people will be built up in the good news of Christ and they'll find their secure identity in him alone, by faith alone. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we thank you that you know all of our struggles to simply stay within your gracious good news. We so want to add to it. We so want to control it rather than to let it control us. So please give us a gospel way of thinking. Give us a lens that sees everything through the finished work of Jesus. And give us a supernatural love for those among your people who are least like us.